You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. ES Audio. Hello, I'm Nancy Durrant. And I'm Nick Clark. Welcome to this week's episode of the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. For our first review, it's The Pillow Man, written by Martin McDonough and starring Lily Allen. A great man once said, the first duty of a storyteller is to tell a story. And I believe in that wholeheartedly. The first duty of a storyteller is to tell a story. Directed by Matthew Dunster, that's on at the Duke of York's Theatre. Plus, we're joined by American playwright and composer Michael R. Jackson for his show, A Strange Loop. I still think of myself a bit as an outsider. I feel like I'm a countercultural artist at heart. And so what has changed is that I have like a bigger platform, but what hasn't changed is that my goals are still to sort of be a rapid responder to changing culture and to challenge the status quo. And we review Accidental Death of an Anarchist starring Daniel Rigby. Ah uh, yes, you poor loves it. must be so hard to keep track of all the investigations these days. We're doing our best. <laughs> if only that were true. No, this one is concerning a recent death that happened in police custody. Okay. Following a sellout run at Lyric Hammersmith, the show is now on in the West End at the Theatre Royal Haymarket. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Nick Curtis is on a well-deserved break this week, so you've just got Nancy and me. So why don't we get started? Um, Nancy, what's the biggest news of the week? Biggest news of the week, I reckon, mainly because I love KST, <laughs> is that uh, Kristen Scott Thomas and Lily James are going to star in a new West End play, Lioness. Possibly lioness, yeah. but it's got a Y in it, yeah. so I sort of feel a little bit French about it. Yeah. Um, and that reunites Ian Rickson with Kristen Scott Thomas, apparently 16 years after their Olivier-winning collaboration <laughs> in The Seagull. Yeah. I think that sounds quite exciting. Is it the Harold Pinter Theatre? Another one in the string of interesting shows they've put on. As, yeah. as a West End theatre house, they're really the one to the one Yeah, to they go really to. are the one that to go to. Yeah, they're sort of knocking out of the park there at the moment, yeah. aren't they? I think they're really good. Uh, we should stress that the uh, Lioness or Lioness is not about the uh, victorious <laughs> women not. footballers. Alas, um, although I uh, await that play with great well, excitement. A sequel to Dear England at the I National, know, perhaps. exactly. I want that. Yeah. I want that so much. No, instead it's about um, an actor played by Kristen Scott Thomas who is somewhat of a recluse, or, or, or sort of vanished in, in mysterious circumstances. I haven't quite got to the bottom of this, but in 30 years on, right. she decides to call on a filmmaker 
Lily James in this case uh, to come and tell her story. Yeah. So she can tell her story with her. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the last time I saw uh, Kristen Scott Thomas on stage was at the Old Vic for Electra. She was absolutely mesmeric then. That was in 2014, I think. And the last time she's been on stage was the following year for the audience where Mm. she played the Queen. Yeah, I Uh, saw her in Electra. That was absolutely amazing. It's been, what, so eight years since she's been on our stages. So not a minute too soon for her to return. No, exactly. I've just got this fantastic vision of her sort of like swanning around the stage in a kind of silken dressing gown being a Mm. sort of you know, an older actress. I like the sound of it. The playwright is Penelope Skinner, Mm. who won actually an Evening Standard Theatre Award for Most Promising Playwright back in 2011. And she's done quite a few things, I think, Mm. but she's not really kind of ever sort of broken through in a big way. I mean, she's been working solidly, but, you know, this is sort of suddenly feels like a like, oh, wow, you know, fantastic. And she's got, you know, it's obviously a sort of, a project that somebody's really keen on got a their teeth West into. End show a new play and yeah. with two A-listers, really. Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty amazing. Well, it's exciting, and I can't wait to see it. Yeah, definitely. Less fun news <laughs> this week: the big freelancer survey came mm. out, which was not a thing I really even knew about before the pandemic. But as we all know, we sort of discovered during the pandemic, just how crap things usually are in theatre for Mm. freelancers, which is like a huge percentage of the workforce. And there was a lot of talk at the time about sort of making things better, how they were going to be treated. Everything was going to be so much more sort of transparent. A pass not. No, well, uh, I mean, the mantra throughout the pandemic was this is a chance to build back better. And what it seems to be now is that those words are ringing particularly hollow, certainly for the freelancers who are the lifeblood of the industry. This survey, which is is done by a group called Freelancers Make Theatre Work, um, you know, it's a pretty exhaustive survey and some of the findings are pretty shocking. I mean, the one that that really sort of punched me in the face a bit actually was the gender pay gap, which is about 37.4% difference, which then delightfully widens to 47.7% among people with a 21 to 30 years of experience. So just sort of a little, a little sprinkling of ageism on the top of the sexism there. So that's particularly grim, I, mean, I think. Really grim that. And, you know, as a sort of wider thing there's a statistic that almost 65% felt pressured to do more work for less pay and you know if things are worse than during the pandemic it's pretty extraordinary yeah that's pretty bad I mean the stage where I used to work both the editor Alistair Smith and uh, associate editor Lynn Garner have written really strongly on this but Lynn basically said listen if this doesn't act as a wake-up call for theatre we're doomed and deserve to be. So, yeah. you know, it's strong not words, be but, any. <laughs> you know, fair. Yeah, I think it's fair. It there's just fair. been a litany yeah. of missed opportunities for Absolutely. this building back better. And of course, then there's the other thing, which is that a sort of staggering 70, but pretty much 78% of them said that Brexit is now a source of uncertainty for mm. their work in the industry, mm. which is just, again, just something that never seems to have been thought about. One of the very slight silver linings of the terrible time of the pandemic was that people getting on these Zoom calls with, you know, higher ups that they would never get in a room Mm. with. It felt like things were changing for the better. And as the stage said, it just feels like the walls are going back up again Mm. now. Yeah, it's a real shame, I think. On which rather miserable note. <laughs> Let's go to a miserable shall we, play. Shall we do a mis- <laughs> Let's review a miserable play. Yeah, so this one is The Pillow Man at yes. the Duke of York's Theatre. What did you think of this one then, Nick? I have lots of thoughts. Um, I mean, to, just to set the scene very briefly, because 
The Pillow Man is one of these plays that you hear a lot about, or certainly heard a lot about, because it's sort of the mythic production from 2003. It won Martin McDonagh and Olivier for Best New Play. So many people have said to me it's their favourite play, or it really? was a real... Yeah. Wow. Uh, and just was a moment in the theatre where they were totally transfixed. It was right. a real transporting moment. The problem is I didn't see that, and I, I went to this, you know, off the, off the back of that hype, so it's always a bit problematic. But So essentially what it is... In a unnamed totalitarian state, a writer called Kachurian Kachurian, whose middle name also uh, is suggested also Kachurian, yeah. um, played by Lily Allen here, uh, has been dragged into a police station to be interrogated by two pretty unpleasant policemen. Uh, they're fairly heavy-handed. They keep threatening to, you know, violate her and beat her up. And you, you're kind of not sure what's going on. But it sort of emerges that essentially she writes these very dark fairy tales. And in real life some of the murders that she has written about appear to be playing out, mm. you know, on children. So the question is, is she involved? Are there stories inspiring this? All the while, she learns that her brother is in prison next door mm. as well. And the policemen use him as, you know, threaten him to mm. try and get her to reveal what she knows. So it's all, is art imitating life? Is it, yeah, all, all, all of that stuff. Essentially, it's it's a story about stories and a story about fairy tales, very dark fairy tales. It's got a wealth of themes. What I found really fascinating about it is that I left the play with my head full of things to think about. You know, it's about how regimes suppress mm. writers. It's freedom of speech, freedom of yeah, expression. The power and, of stories. And the power of stories. But it's also about the writer's duty to the reader, you know, yeah. and what readers take from stories. But ultimately, what I found it's quite tricksy. It sort of posits these things and steps away from them. It doesn't give you yeah. any resolution. It really. doesn't. And it's true. And I know we've talked about this before, particularly around a little life, you know, the, the, the trying to resist the temptation to expect an artist to deliver a moral, mm. you know, to tie something up in a bow. Absolutely. Yeah. But it is hard to call this satisfying. Mm. I was quite struck by my own response to it in a way, mm. because Despite being a play that features both police brutality and the murder and torture of a number of small children, that doesn't happen on stage, just just in case anybody was really like appalled. Uh, but it's not nice. And there were definitely a few walkouts. Oh, yeah. Both before the show, when someone had read the synopsis and just went, actually, I'm not going to like this. Uh, during the first half, I think I saw one person just leave. And definitely there were fewer full seats in the stalls after the interval, which didn't surprise me at all. Not yeah. because it was bad, but I think yeah. people find the, even the idea of violence to children so incredibly difficult to deal with. But of course, yeah. despite all of that, weirdly did not alter my equilibrium mm. at all, which is, as far as I'm concerned, is kind of the point of art. So mm. it, was, it wasn't even a torture in a way. So the only part of it that really made me feel something, that like made me feel very, very discomforted was the first scene. Katurian doesn't know why she's there. Yeah. Um, she's trying to be accommodating. She's got literally no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. They are so threatening. They're not even pretending not to be threatening. You know, the good cop of the good cop, bad cop, <laughs> is very clearly also a very bad cop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like there's nothing good about this. Um, and also, Katurian, I think, before was a male role. This yes. is the first time it's been played as a female role. The change in the physical... Um, power differential makes a really big difference at I that agree. moment, I think. So I felt really uncomfortable at that point, which I think is right and proper and a good response to a piece of art. But after that, 
she just becomes someone who can withstand torture mm -hmm. and is so obsessed with the legacy of her artistic work that she doesn't even care whether they kill her or not. Yes. I'm not asking for Martin McDonough's like characters to be relatable. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like that's really no, not. There a is thing. no one relatable <laughs> like, in this. But play. I am sort of expecting them to be vaguely realistic. Is that the word I'm looking for? I'm not sure. I just mm. so that I somehow feel for them, but they don't seem real. I felt like there was always some kind of invisible curtain between me and them and mm. their emotions. I couldn't hook up to it after that scene. I yeah. found it really hard, it's very weird. Well, is that because this is a meta story of fairy tales about fairy tales and whether they're ciphers in some way as mm. well. And to assume Katurin is the person we are rooting for at the beginning and we're as discombobulated as she is. Yeah. And in fact, it's, it's interesting. I was reading a lot of the reviews. They've been quite critical of Lily Allen. I actually thought she was quite good. It's I mean, one hell of a role. She's practically on stage all yes. the time and she's being rinsed. Yeah, I liked the vulnerability she yeah. showed. Now, I don't know whether people are comparing it. I believe it was David Tennant. I may be wrong on that. But uh, I don't know whether they are comparing to that 2003 performance in a, yeah. you know, a very different way. I actually thought she really pulled it off and I was with her. Yeah, I know, totally. I thought she was great. But as you say, I think when she's talking about artistic legacy and and that you can really see the McDonough through line all the way to Banshees in, of Inner Sheeran yeah. which again is about what will we leave behind mm. securing legacy that yeah. sort of thing for an artist yeah. um, you know, even down to removal of digits as well there is yes, a, is there a is theme a that also of, runs yeah, uh, yeah. to the Banshees yeah, as well from this play thumbs and so forth on, but, the, uh, on the floor they bounce it, turns out they, <laughs> but it was so Trixie, there's stories that um, McDonough puts in there. There's one that says this is a mystery that doesn't have a resolution in which yeah. a character wakes up and is in a gibbet or something. And yeah. uh, there's two other you know, yeah, gibbets, like, one that says, yeah. you know, this terrible crime. That says that one and everyone forgives all the, the nuns, forgive the other two and then run away crying when they see what he's done. Right. And you never find out what he's done. Yeah. I wonder whether that's a nod to what this play in some ways of the, the morality stakes of it and what he's sort of positing there mm. before running away. And yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, you know, life doesn't have resolutions, does it, very often? I mean, except for, the, except for the ultimate one, but it's sort of, uh, yeah. But I, as a I fairy know, just, tale, it yeah. feels like, I'm sorry, I keep saying it's, it's a fairy helpful. tale, but those tend to be morality tales. They tend yeah. to have messages. The other thing that I was thinking, it felt to me, and this seems odd to say about a play of 2003, that it's very much a play of its time. Oh, yeah. It's dated. It yeah. is very, very dated, I think. It's very sort of... Uh, I I couldn't... I can't quite get my hand on the texture of what that is, mm. but it feels so early 2000s. I think it's unpleasant people hilariously wittily saying the unspeakable and saying terrible things to yeah. shock the audience but still saying these are terrible people saying it so we're saying it but we're putting it in the mouths of, yeah, the uh, sort of terrible people so we're criticising it too sort of look at us pushing the boundaries yeah, aren't we? it feels Ever. like we've gone through that and out the other side in some ways yeah I think you're right actually I think that's true the phrase horror Ben Elton has just popped into my head which is actually making me feel like that's I don't wish to insult uh, Martin McDonough because I do think he's a very talented writer but that is kind of the vibe well Hangman is still one of my favourite plays of mm. recent years well, that is an excellent piece of work yeah. I think Brilliant. So I was really expecting a lot from this and maybe I was expecting too much. You know, it's it's billed as a sort of, well, is it billed? I don't know. Everybody says it's a very, yeah, no, it is. In fact, it's billed as a very dark comedy. Mm. And it is clearly a comedy. Yes. I could see the jokes happening mm. and the moments of humour and appreciate that that's what they were. But I didn't find them funny. It didn't make me laugh. The other thing that really 
bothered me about it, and I think is related to that datedness because it felt so inevitable, was that I could see the moments that were supposed to shock and appall me, but I could see them coming between 20 seconds and a minute before they happened. And there was a lot of laughter in the audience, at least in pockets, definitely pockets. You know when you can hear that there's like little sections of the audience, but actually there are big chunks of it that aren't laughing. Mm. And the same with the twisty moments. There was a lot of a sort of audible response. Oh, no. Oh, you know, like that. But most of that, I was like, are you serious? Did you seriously not see that coming? Yeah. I think that does have something to do with that early 2000s sort of every few minutes, there's going to be a little shocker. The end result of it was was a bit deadening, which doesn't feel like a well-spent evening. <laughs> Just quickly, though, also, the other performances I thought yeah. were great. Steve Pemberton as uh, uh, the, yeah. uh, the ostensible good cop, yeah. Topolsky, uh, <laughs> yeah. really total shit, yeah. uh, and Paul Kay as Ariel, who I always think of as a very, a sort of a thinner, a small man, and but just has this huge kind of like big burly, certainly burly charisma yeah. on stage, actually. He certainly gives the impression of being a much bigger man than I thought yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought they were both really, really good. He's always great, I think, Paul Kay. He was yeah, in Matilda, obviously, yes. and also yes. at the National and Our Country's Good. I remember him. He was excellent in that. I always enjoy watching him. And uh, the cast is, you know, I think it's a really well put together cast. I think they do a brilliant job. Yeah, just didn't you love know? it. I just, exactly. The writing <laughs> is, you know, you can tell it's by an incredibly good writer. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of it is, is someone just stepping forward and telling stories. Yeah. And actually, that, that, that is engaging, but yeah. only to a point. Yeah. Right. Should we go to the ads? Yep. Coming up, I talked to Michael R. Jackson about the long journey to success for his show, A Strange Loop. Plus, he describes what it was like for him as a theatre usher and his complex relationship with movie mogul Tyler Perry. 
musical, and it's writing musical about a fat black gay man named Usher who works as an Usher at a Broadway musical, who's writing a musical about a fat black gay man named Usher who works as an Usher at a Broadway musical, ad infinitum, okay. and it's sort of cycling through his own self-perception. Right. And at the risk of getting bogged down in cognitive science, which is not, I think, what any of us signed up for, what is a strange loop? A strange loop is a cognitive science term coined by this guy named Douglas Hofstadter to sort of uh, discuss the nature of consciousness and um, self-reference. Okay. And he gets sort of uh, Usher, his ambitions are often thwarted, aren't they, by his sort of self-critical thoughts, which are embodied in the musical. Correct. Yeah. There is an ensemble of six thoughts that sort of portray his perception of, like, the world. Let's put it that way. Right. And as I said, The Strange Loop, you won the Pulitzer. It was 11 times Tony nominated, Mm -hmm. which is insane. You won two. You catapulted into the public consciousness by this show. But this was not in any way an overnight success, was it? Not at all. Yeah, I started writing um, A Strange Loop as a monologue, which was not called A Strange Loop at the time, um, when I was about 23 years old, right after I graduated from undergrad playwriting at NYU. And at the time, it was just a thinly veiled personal monologue that I wrote as a kind of life raft for myself at a difficult time. The world was in a kind of crazy place, and I was unsure of what I was going to do next. And so the that monologue was an attempt to sort of capture in real time what it felt like to be me. Right. And when you say the world was in a crazy place, can you just, it's certainly in terms of like what will give people a sense of how long it's taken, but also what was going on at the time, what was going on? So, I mean, I guess the the best uh, way I can describe is that we were, the U.S. was about to go to a war with Iraq in the like three months or two or three months later from when I started it. And so the atmosphere in America was very much charged because it was like two years from September 11th. Yeah. Um, there were guards in the subway with guns. Like I just had never experienced anything like that. That was like the sort of political atmosphere at the time. And I was just like uh, freshly graduated from art school and I had moved to the middle of nowhere, Jamaica, Queens, in New York, to this old lady's house on the second floor of her <laughs> bungalow apartment. I like my student loans were going to be due. I like you know had to get on my parents' health insurance. Like it just real life just came at me like very very quickly. <laughs> yeah. And I was not prepared for it. And the only thing that I had was just my my writing. Like yeah. that was the only sort of resource I could turn to for any sort of like security or understanding or anything. And so I just sort of dove into it. And I just kept with it over the years. I went back to grad school um, to study musical theater writing specifically. And then I started writing music toward the end of my first year. I was encouraged to continue to write music, even though I was in the program as a lyricist and a book writer. Then I started trying to put some of the songs that I was writing into the monologue. And then that uh, it sort of morphed into uh, what would become a strange loop after that. Right. and But you, you've described it as self-referential instead of autobiographical. Yeah, because it's not... It's not a one-to-one ratio of events in my life. There's a real mix of fact and fiction in it. Um, and so I don't think it's appropriate to describe it strictly as autobiographical, maybe emotionally autobiographical, in that I have felt everything that Usher feels, but the events are are still fiction. 
But the piece must have evolved as you have evolved, right? Yes. Um, I always say when I change, a strange loop changes. And when a strange loop changes, I change. Right. Um, so, yeah. But what you're seeing is like a, almost 20 years of thought sort of packed into this 90 minutes of show or, you know, 100 minutes of show. Um, and But like over the – especially leading up to the first production of it, like many things changed. Uh, leading up to it. Your main character is is an, a theatre usher. His name is Usher. And you have said that you started writing because you desperately wanted to not be a theatre usher anymore. Um, so what were the best and worst things about being a theatre usher? The best thing about it was that it sustained me somewhat financially during... <laughs> like a hard time. I mean, it yeah. didn't really sustain me, but it was like the income that I had while yeah. I was doing other things. And I guess the worst part was like, I just had to watch the same thing like every night. And like <laughs> the people, it was just a lot of people. It's a, it's very much a, a service position. And like, and, and I also think like ushering for Disney is a different kind of thing than of ushering for other Broadway things because Disney has it. It's like they have like very strict rules about like how you dress and what you can do and how are you supposed to point and you don't point and and all because they want to. It's just like their theme parks. Yeah, like there's a code that there's just like they like want there to be a uniform experience for the guests who I come. See. And I just think that over time that was really grating on me. <laughs> that sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> um, Usher has a very uncomfortable relationship uh, with the work and legacy of the playwright and movie mogul Tyler Perry. Can mm-hmm. you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, that, like many other things in the show, is one of the loops, I right. guess I would call it, uh, because Usher is a black theater writer who has his own sort of artistic ambitions. But in the world, Tyler Perry is this sort of multi-millionaire figure who puts out work that Usher is encouraged to mimic because it's so financially um, satisfying. And there are like a lot of, you know, black audiences that really love his work. But Usher's like, I have a different take on on what I want to be doing and I don't want to just do what he does. And, mm. and so there's just a little bit of a debate there about you know, art versus commerce. Yeah. You've spoken to Tyler Perry on the phone, haven't you? Yeah, we have a complex (laughs) phone relationship, I guess. (laughs) Um, He called me out of the blue when I won the Pulitzer. uh, And so when we talked and we texted on and off over the years and spoken on and off over the years. That's... Good, but as you say, complex. It is complex. (laughs) When I saw A Strange Loop on Broadway, I was so surprised by it. It was like nothing else I'd seen. And I was blown away that this show, this story had ended up on Broadway. Not that there was an audience for it. Um, I think that's been obvious for some time. But that it was clear enough to kind of commercial producers that there was an audience for it, that they were prepared to put in a shed load of money and get it on Broadway. Um, How do you think that the theatre space has particularly has changed over the last decade or even, you know, the 18 years it's taken you to get it done in terms of the stories that are told, the work that's presented? 
Um, I think that theater has changed in that there's now much more of an appetite for what we are calling diversity for diverse representation. Right. But I think that that sometimes is only a skin deep. Yeah. Like it were identity deep rather. Um, it's not necessarily uh, always about like the ideas that are being presented. Mm. And so that's why like I'm, for me, it's always it's it's difficult to sort of talk about what has changed or what right. hasn't changed because there's always these like trends that come and go and and you can attribute whatever meaning to them you, you want. What would you like to see change? I personally am really hungry for a deeper engagement with the ideas within the works and for like a a more rigorous critical engagement like uh, I feel like in theater in New York at least there's just like there's a little bit of a a silo um, sort of ideologically artistically politically like all that stuff and it like makes it so that people it's in my view can only sort of interpret art from like very sort of rigid and like specific points of view and and it makes it difficult to like actually sort of like get at something or to like have a real conversation about it so much is just about like the representation of it like is it is there someone black on broadway is someone queer is someone woman is someone whatever it is like and, right. and then you don't actually talk about what 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 is it like? Yeah, what, what are the what's the piece about? What is it? What are what are they what are they saying in their work? And so I would like to see more critical engagement around that. Wow, I think yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, the success of the show obviously will, is thrilling. It's a delightful validation for an artist. But how has the creation of the show and the long term evolution of it changed the way that you see and feel about yourself? I think that I see myself as an artist as even though the show has been like very well received in a lot of ways, I still think of myself a bit as an outsider and and it which is to say I feel like I'm a countercultural artist at heart. And so what has changed is that I have like a bigger platform, but what hasn't changed is that my goals are still to sort of um, be a rapid responder to changing culture and to challenge the status quo. And what's next? Well, I mean, you're just opening A Strange Loop and it's on until September the 9th, I think, Mm -hmm. the bar weekend, which is a great run. Yes. What's next? What are you um, working on? I'm working on a musical with my collaborator, Anna K. Jacobs, uh, an adaptation of the indie horror comedy movie uh, Teeth. Oh, yes. Uh, that is about an evangelical Christian girl who discovers she has teeth in her vagina. 
And so we're working on a musical version of that that'll be in New York at Playwrights Horizons, where Strange Loop started next year. I cannot wait to see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to be wild. A Strange Loop is at the Barbican until September the 9th. It's only an hour and 40 minutes straight through, which I know will make some of your ears prick up, and you should definitely see it. Thank you, Michael R. Jackson, for being on the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's go to a quick ad break. Coming up, our next review is for Accidental Death of an Anarchist. Did the show deserve a West End transfer or not? I'm Lenny Henry, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Right, Accidental Death of an Anarchist. Actually, the star, Daniel Rigby, gave us a really good description of this when Nick interviewed him, so why don't we let him explain it? Accidental Death of an Anarchist is a farce that takes place in a police station. I play a character called the Maniac, who is arrested initially for impersonating a psychiatrist, but um, seizes on the opportunities presented to him to disguise himself as a judge who's conducting an inquiry into the recent death of an anarchist from the same police station and manages to get the um, police to basically incriminate themselves um, and make them look like absolute fools. Well, that works. Uh, You can find the rest of that interview in the show notes. Anyway, Nick... What are your thoughts? I really enjoyed this. Oh, it was brilliant. I mean, just an absolute explosion of energy in the West End. It was something else. So you, you just don't expect a 1970s Italian farce to really light up the West End. It's funny, isn't it? Both of our shows this week could be put into the category of absurdist theatre and both of them feature police brutality and an almost Kafka-esque sort of twisting of narrative. It's interesting how it sort of all bubbles up at the same time, isn't it? Set in miserable Yeah, exactly, (laughs) miserable places. It's so funny. I feel like this is like being playfully bludgeoned with a bag of feathers while also being gripped by the fear that someone's going to slip an anvil in there without you noticing. It's really... That's extraordinary and very apt. Very funny and very discombobulating. (laughs) Well, we should also mention that it's been brought amazingly uh, up to date by the writer and adapter Tom Basden. Oh, it's a masterful adaptation. So it is not 1970s Milan, which was uh, Foe's piece was based Mm. on a real uh, case there. It's actually very much present day and skewers the Metropolitan Police. Full of statistics as well. Full of actual statistics of actual incidents of death and injury in custody and how many any uh, unresolved complaints and all that kind of well, stuff. Which it's is your, really... your point about the anvil is true. So you're laughing uproariously and then every now and then they will just slip in a true statistic about, let's say, the number of complaints that actually lead to uh, a conviction or an officer being mm. disciplined uh, was less than 1%. You know, so every now and then in between the sort of tears of laughter, there would be audible gasps. Yeah. And I think it's done in a really brilliantly um, theatrical but also a stunning way just to wrong foot the audience again and again. Yeah, it's it's directed by Daniel Raggett and you know it's a farce because there are two doors at the back, <laughs> right? <laughs> but the farcical elements I think are cleverer than that. Mm. Like They're very much cleverer than that, but possibly with the exception of the wig gag, which is also very funny. Yes. I mean, Daniel Rigby's painfully extended attempts to get off a table are <laughs> one of the funniest things I've seen in the West End in quite a long time. It's a really finely cheap piece of work absolutely and let's go to Daniel Rigby oh let's bow down to Daniel Rigby this is the Daniel Rigby show and there's no mistaking that 
what a performance. Oh, I mean, a little bit scary. Absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Sort of Lee Evans on crack. That's <laughs> <the thing. laughs> um, I mean, he is gurning, mimicking, leaping about, breaking the fourth wall. He amazingly walks the fine line of being hilarious and really annoying and always, yeah. almost always falls down on the right side. When, even when he, when it just sort of becomes a little bit annoying, there's another great gag that follows in seconds behind, so you don't have time to even worry about that. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I think one key thing is that even though the manic energy is fully maintained, it doesn't really get samey. No. If I'm going to pick little holes... I think the first half is better than the second half. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because at first those moments when he reels off the kind of shocking stats about Mm -hmm. deaths or injuries or unresolved complaints and whatever, they're quite few and far between. Mm. So they have quite a particular impact. Mm. Whereas in the second half, it feels like there are more of them and they're slightly longer. So they sort of stick a bit less. But uh, uh, to be honest, you're still kind of cantering through all of it as you say you don't quite have time to go okay that bit was a little bit boring or anything like that between him and Daniel Raggett I think it is just the structuring of the whole thing is fantastic so it's not just Daniel Rigby there are great performances around him there's uh, Tom Andrews as Detective Daisy the pugnacious Detective Daisy something uh, of the um, what's his name that bloke from the Meg Jason Statham something of the Jason Statham about him I think he plays into that and it's brilliant and Tony Gardner who's the police chief yeah Superintendent Curry he's very good who just bumbling he's trying to be in charge and he keeps changing his story and the, the maniac just manipulates all of them brilliantly and they got to say I love the moment they were all singing Bella Chow oh that is, that is a is highlight of the theatrical so <laughs> <years>. special <laughs> as, as a sort of ensemble it really worked but you know you can't look past Daniel Rigby he's just I mean how does he do on a two show day I just I do not bucket, know <laughs> buckets of sweat and you know it's the most physical complex wordy yeah. performance yeah. and he never falters not for a second it's absolutely amazing. I think everyone should see it. It's so, so good. There are, there are moments in it that, you know, it, it is a farce and that it does stray into panto every now, but they, they lean into that. He yeah. throws sweets into the audience. Oh, God, I forgot about that. That was so funny. <laughs> just, I got one of those, actually. And, it wasn't very nice. Yeah. Oh, you caught one? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it sort of landed on me. Yeah. Um, oh, and really, it, and you just wouldn't have thought that this would be ca- a candidate for a West End transfer. And yet it is... <laughs> The absolutely the perfect thing. I think to, people to just really do enjoy watching someone work really hard, really, really well. Yeah, it's just it's yeah. really it's like you know couldn't think of anything more different. Forty Second Street. It's absolutely wonderful watching people hoof away like mad for two hours yeah. when you're sitting in your seat. It's brilliant. It's yeah. really like <laughs> I do think I think audiences appreciate. An incredible performance. Someone who's really working. For yeah, exactly. <laughs> In Nick Curtis's interview with Daniel, he does uh, reveal the intensity of playing the maniac. So do go back and listen to that. It's, yeah, definitely. It is intense. But then book tickets and see the show. Absolutely. And that's it for this week's Theatre Podcast. Thanks to our guest this week, Michael R. Jackson. You can find all our interviews below, such as with Tim Minchin, Lenny Henry and Millie Alcock and many, many more. You can find all our reviews and news too online at standard.co.uk and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Thanks as ever to our producer Rachel Abbott and we'll see you next Sunday. 